Hello everyone and welcome back to an NCP conversation where biblical sermons are presented through a TED Talk-like fashion. I'm your host, William Kahn, and today we are going through episode number 15, The False Promise of Anger. Let's get right into this sermon because it's very timely based on the culture that we live in today and I'm very excited for it. So, without further ado, here's episode number 15. Hello everyone, greetings and salutations. I'm so excited to be going through this Bible verse with you today because we are exploring an epic biblical passage. I believe this passage is one that has broken through our worldview in North America as a common saying. I believe it is that good. The truth we're looking at today is how do we live in today's world to see our desired outcomes come to their desired conclusions. More pointedly, how do we see life transformation happen today? Many biblical passages find a hard time landing in today's culture because they're a little bit out of date, they're hard to understand. But today's passage is so common, it was used within the last month by a high profile Hollywood actor. Chris Pratt is an actor who plays lead roles in Jurassic Park, or Jurassic World, that may be, and Guardians of the Galaxy, and has taken a brave stance over the last few months, revealing himself to be somebody who follows God. He had an amazing speech where he stood up in front of teens and said, you have a soul, and that you should take care of that soul through prayer. Friends, this is not an easy thing to do in the context of Hollywood. To be a Christian isn't a noble thing, it is a backward thing to Hollywood. It is a regressive thing, and he is in danger of losing work because of this public display of Christian rhetoric. A few weeks ago, the director of the Guardians of the Galaxies was cut from his job because of past inappropriate jokes he had made. In solidarity, the members came around uh, the director and sent out replies to the public Chris Pratt, being um, a lead actor in Guardians of the Galaxy, put out a simple Twitter tweet that said, uh, James 119, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is a passage that we're looking at today. This is a simple yet beautiful passage because there's so much outrage in the world we live in today in Canada and North America. Maybe it is because everything is so accessible these days. Maybe it's because we can capture a moment on our iPhones, on our Androids, and within minutes, that very same moment is put up on the internet. Whether for good or bad, where thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people can see. Maybe it's because it's easier to be outraged, to say what's on your mind when you're behind the keyboard of a computer instead of being face-to-face with another human being and you don't have to see your outcome of your hateful words on another person right before you. Whatever the reason for this outraged culture, it's only going to continue to grow. I believe we would be much more rewarded if we listened to this simple yet obvious advice to be quick to listen, 
slow to speak and slow to become angry. Here's the truth though. We don't follow this advice. The truth is we live in an outraged culture because we do allow our anger to flare up. We allow our anger to take us hostage, to swing us from side to side with hot passion. Why? Well, I believe as men and women, we are actually drawn to things, one of them being anger. You see, there's a natural order to the world. Order falls into chaos. Peace falls into strife. We are drawn as human beings to anger. We don't need to wonder where that anger comes from. We know we're drawn to it. You see, it's more confusing when we see order come out of chaos, when we see peace come from strife, because you have to walk to those ends. You have to walk to see order come into the world. You have to walk to have peace with everyone around you. Everyone experiences anger. This is a truth. But it's not a problem. See, the problem is we allow that anger to take hold of us, to have that hot passion direct our thoughts, our words, our actions, our Facebook posts, our Twitter posts, our Instagram feed. We allow that anger to consume us and to direct the things in our lives. Why do we allow this anger to take over? The simple truth is this, that we think there's this promise that anger will lead to a positive change in our life. You see, we wouldn't enact anger if we thought it would lead us to terrible places. Yet, it does. It is a false promise of anger. Anger, we think, will lead to a positive change in our life. Let me give you a few examples of this. Parents, why do you get angry with your kids? Well, it's probably because you believe a thing or two. You believe it's the quickest way to get them to do what you want them to do. Let's say you're cooking dinner and you see your child about to put his or her hand on the hot stove. What do you do? Well, you might scream at them and in shock, they pull their hand away. You see, this is a fine thing because you are warning them of danger. However, it allows an open door to you knowing that raising your voice may get them to obey more quickly. So instead of insisting your children to put away their toys in a polite and practical way, trust me, I understand your parents, you're tired, you're exhausted, kids are a lot of work. And maybe you know that if you yell at them, you might get a more hastily ready response from them. Maybe, just maybe, they may put their toys more away more quickly. Maybe you found it's the best way to keep them in line. We all know that kids can easily lose their focus, lose their perspective. Maybe you think that by snapping at them, it will snap them back into attention to do what they need to do, not what they want to do. So you resort more quickly to anger because you need to present the perfect family in a moment you deem as critical. Maybe you know your anger makes them quiet. And maybe you're so exhausted you just need an hour of quietness. Maybe the blunt fact is that you're just angry with your kids. Whatever the reason you are angry with your kids, you believe that you'll get the desired results more quickly than 
if you don't, if you resort to anger. You'll get your desired results more quickly if you more quickly resort to anger. Husbands, maybe you snap at your wives because you think that by using the position of power, you can win an argument if you just argue long enough and hard enough. Maybe you don't like to admit you're wrong and you think that if you show a sign of force, you can shut down the conversation and you won't have to admit your faults. Wise, why do you get angry at your husbands? Do you think by getting angry, you'll get them to do that one thing you want done sooner? Why is anger your preferred tactic? Is it the best tactic? Is it the final tactic? See, seeing life from my wife's eyes, from my wife's point of view, I can honestly understand why she would get angry at me. Sometimes it takes me as a husband a long time to get what she needs me to do. Now, my wife is a wonderful, caring, loving human being. She's not perfect. I love her with all my heart. And, and, and there's a reason why I married her over everyone else. Um, but this is one area that she succeeds in with me. She has this wonderful patience with me. She won't use force on me to get away. She tries to figure out why I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then she comes from a position of help to help me get done what she needs me to get done. It's more than I could ever have asked for as a husband. Why might we use anger on other people, on our friends and associates? We do so because we might hope that position of power to overwhelm the other party, hoping that they will do what we want instead of having to ask them. See, sometimes we don't even want to give the option to another person. We don't want to give them the chance for them to back down before they make the commitment to what we want them to do. The truth is that we believe by using power, propping us up on this inflated position of power helps us get what we want people to do when we want them to do it. See, this might be true, that we might get the intended results in the short term, but we ignore the long-term consequences of this behavior. See, parents yelling at their kids might help them stay in line to show the perfect family, to improve performance, even general behavior. But over time, you end up with broken kids, too scared to break out on their own because of their shrieking that might come from the kitchen where mom is cooking, or worse from the office where dad is working. Spouses live in houses where they have obedient partners, only to look a little deeper to find that their partner is only a shell of themselves living in a dystopian relationship. There's no home in the house, just empty, divisive partnership where one cannot trust the other and vice versa. Friends, or at least people you thought you would call friends, ignore your calls, your pleas for help because they're tired of the manipulation, the late night phone calls, the concealed threats to ruin them if they step out of line. So you don't find friends but enemies when you use anger to control them. The concentrated partnership you're hoping for is only met with conflict. Sometimes <laughs> we foolishly use anger against God. Screaming at the skies, we think that if we threaten God, maybe somehow we will get what we're looking for. Friends, it's, it's foolishness to threaten 
a God. If you believe he is all-knowing, all-powerful, at all places. Sometimes the worst thing we might do is we might threaten ourselves, thinking that is the best motivation to get ourselves going. And we fall into these patterns of self-harm because we don't live up to our own expectations and we have to follow through with our anger. See, being angry produces only a cage for ourselves in which we trick ourselves to live in because if I'm angry, that will show them. So we enter this cage of anger, railing against ourselves and against other people, hoping that our children, our spouses, our friends, ourselves, or perhaps even God himself will see our poor state and will come to serve our every need. It's a very self-centered position to be in. The truth is, even though we think anger will produce the desired change, the desired transformation we hope to see in others long term, <laughs> the narrative says, it won't. It will only produce fear, conflict, division, foolishness, perhaps even harm and self-harm. James, however, doesn't leave his readers there. See, verse 19, all by itself, is this beautiful proverb. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. But even better, the verse goes on to say, For anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, we think that anger is going to give us the results we desire. We believe the promise of anger, and yet it's false promise. The truth is our anger, the anger of man, rarely produces the goodness we hope it will produce. So we're left wondering, what will produce the results we most hope for? What will produce the right and good loving? What will give us profound life transformation? We read on from verse 20 to 21. Therefore, since we are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because anger does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore put away all filth filthiness, and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. My friends, what produces life transformation is two things. First, it is putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and second, it is receiving the meekness with meekness the word which is able to save your souls. If the greater truth is that anger does not produce life transformation, but it is putting away filth and wickedness and receiving the word that does, let us put some legs to those two things so that we can continue to do them and see our lives dramatically changed for the better. So we must first start with putting away filthiness. James uses this fantastic illustration where he says we don't necessarily have to add to it. See, we're talking about true life change here. Let me use this example. What happens when you go out into the rain and play in the mud? You get dirty, right? Filthy. That is the term James is using here. Have you ever come in from a hard day's work and you just feel gross and nasty? You're thinking all you want to do is hop into that shower, get some clean water running over you, and just feel the muscles relax and the heart streams. Right? What does it feel like when you step out of the shower? Right? You know, 
I know for me, as a man, I come out of the shower, I say these two things. I feel so much better. And secondly, I feel like a new man. Becoming new in this context, in this verse, means that you take off the dirty clothes before you put on clean ones. Why? Why do we do this? Because putting clean clothes over dirty clothes leaves you wearing two sets of dirty clothes. I want to take just a quick second to stop here because James is speaking to a particular group of people. He's talking to those who are Christians, right? And Christians are people who have already given their life over to Jesus. See, if we read this verse in isolation, it sounds like we have to strip off the dirty clothes before we put new ones on to become transformed. See, the truth is that we take off our clothes and we hop into the shower when we enter God's house. There's a story of a son, it's a parable that Jesus uses, of a son who loses everything to come home after feeding pigs for a job. This man, this is a definition of filthy, a man who is in the slop with the pigs. And as he comes home, the father runs to him, embraces him in his unclean clothes. See, friends, you don't have to clean up before you come to God. You come to God in all of your mess. God accepts you as you are, but does not intend to leave you that way. So you come home and God wraps his arms around your filthy, covered mess. And he brings you back into the home. He brings you back into the family. And in the home, he says, go have a shower and take these clean clothes. The difference is that you have to first come home before you shower. You don't shower before you show up at God's door. It is the water that God provides that makes you clean. So you come home and God doesn't intend for you to stay filthy. Go take a shower, he says. So you don't walk into the shower with wearing all your dirty clothes. You must first remove the clothes. You wash with clean water and you remove all the filth from yourself, from the things God has given you. You don't leave your clothes on. You don't put a clean set of clothes over the dirty set of clothes. You change by first taking off the filthy clothes to wash, to put on new clothes, new clean clothes clothes, the clothes of the family. Some of you have filthy clothes still on you. These are things that are weighing you down. And once you have come back into the family of God, once you come back into the fold, we must begin to strip those things off of you so that you are no longer weighed down by the dirt and grime. And what are those things that are on you? Perhaps they are the expectations that your parents have of you. They don't believe in God and they see religious religion as a backward step of humanity. And you know that if you came to them and said, Dad, Mom, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, they would reject you. You are being weighed down because even though you know how good God is, you're scared to think what your parents might think of you. To think that you could tell them that you are a follower of Jesus. Friends, you have to remove that dirty layer of clothing. Your parents 
ideal of you cannot be better than you coming home into the family of God. Maybe, friends, you might have a porn addiction and you're drawn to those X-rated videos instead of a relationship with God and with others in healthy, loving relationships. Friends, you got to remove that dirty cloth from you. Maybe you're unhappy and the way you become happy is you eat. You have a food addiction and the way to fill that empty space within yourself, you fill it with McDonald's and Burger King. Friends, you have to remove that from yourself. Remove that filth from your life that is pulling you away from God. These things that pull you away from God is what the Bible calls wicked things. You have to remove these things from your life. So the first thing you have to do is recognize unhealthy, filthy behaviors and rituals and habits you have in your life. The worst thing is that there may even be things of comfort. They might not even be bad things. There's nothing wrong with going to get a Big Mac every once in a while. But when we begin to head to McDonald's to fill our physical needs and our emotional needs and our spiritual needs and to fill the emptiness we feel inside, we are engaging in wicked things, things that lead us away from God towards death. McDonald's is an enjoyable thing. It can be a great thing, it can be a good thing, it just can't be used to transform your life. Because if you go to McDonald's to transform your life, your life will be transformed. And it won't be for the better. If you go to porn to fill your needs, your life will be transformed. But it won't be for the better. If you go to your parents, your wife, your kids, your husbands to meet your need, your life will be transformed. But it won't be for the better. Friends, we can only go to God for true, wonderful life transformation. So we cut out the things of filth and wickedness that is holding you down. And secondly, we must add, accept, the believe the word of God, the work and person of Jesus. Why is this second part in here? Because it's critically important to know what you're looking at so you walk in a straight line. A famous pastor, John Calvin, once said that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. He's essentially saying that we long to fill our lives with something to worship. What does this mean? We have to set a north star for ourselves. And that star has to be God, it has to be Jesus. Because if we don't, we are going to be drawn in all these other directions. Because we are naturally prone to devote our, sides, our lives to something. Men and women do not live in a bubble. We exist within a world and we want to find our place in that world. We want to do things to cling to. We have filled our lives with wicked and dirty things because we didn't know what to cling to, so we cling to many things. We cling to all things. Why do we cling to these things? Because one, we want to fill our lives with something. And two, unknowing what to fill it with, 
we filled it with anything we think will satisfy to transform our lives into something better. Jesus, sorry, James is making the assumption here that you and me as readers of this text understand there's only one thing that satisfies, one thing that makes our lives better, one thing that will transform our lives. That thing James refers to is the word which is able to save your souls. If the truth is that we turn to anger to produce the results we want to see in our lives, yet the greater truth is that that anger does not do that. It is not used for that. What is the greatest truth? What is the gospel truth? Easy. The greatest truth is that the thing that produces the results we want to see in our lives, the thing that produces life change, life transformation, is the Word. And the Word is known as Jesus. Maybe you're skeptical about this last point. Maybe you've looked in the mirror and you've realized you've been angry in hopes of getting what you want. You've been angry with your parents, your friends, your spouse, your kids, your God, even yourself, in order to push them, you, to be better, to find yourself and others continuing to do what you've always done. And you find there is no transformation. There is barely even change. You've come to the conclusion that anger does not work. That anger doesn't produce life transformation. You're critical that it's Jesus. My question to you is, do you have a better answer? There have been many who have tried to search for the right answer. They've come up short again and again. They've looked for meaning in relationships, in wealth, in legacy, in accomplishments, in pleasure, in everything and anything under the sun. And what produces the greatest life transformation? I can tell you it ain't McDonald's. Friends, it is Jesus. All these things I mentioned, relationships, wealth, legacy, accomplishments, pleasure, these are idols. These are the things we try and dive into, into our work, into relationships, into accomplishment, to say we are worthy because of these things. The truth is we are worthy not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us because we are fundamentally broken and we cannot save ourselves from diving into the desires that lead to death. Having the options, we wouldn't bear the cross that could save us, but we would rather head down to Whopper Wednesday. We have desires that aim to hurt us rather than to transform us. We aim for the easy, not for the meaningful. We lack the wisdom, and we are at times great disasters. We, friends, were far from God. Yet God, in his ultimate wisdom, being fundamentally life-giving, having the desire to bring lost children home, to give them eternal life, took the hard road, not the easy road, the meaningful road, to send his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life to teach us how to live under a God who loves us, to die a death he did not deserve, to take the punishment for you and me, so we would be spared from the wrath of God, and we would be given the title Son of God. Jesus made the sacrifice to take our guilt, to take our sin, 
and ultimately to take our punishment so that we could be freed from the curse of sting and the sting of death. Because of the life, the work, the person of Jesus, you and I get to go today free from sin, evil, and the wrath of God. This, friends, is life transformation you and I are looking for. We who are enemies of God are now friends and children of God. We who were dead are now alive because of what God did for us. We who are looking for the things in life to worship have been given the ultimate King and God to worship, to serve for eternity. A beautiful child-father relationship that is right and whole and perfect. We belong in the family of God and it was done through the work Jesus did for us on the cross. Although we think anger will produce a life change in us, it won't. It won't. The only thing that will is if we continue to take off the filthy clothing that has not worked for us before, the things we once wore, the addictions, the need for approval, the vanity, the gluttony, the pride, and replace it with the word, the gospel truth, the only thing that produces right way of living, the only thing that produces life change, believing and accepting the truth that through Jesus, we who were enemies of God became children of God. It is a beautiful gospel. It is a merciful gospel. And it was done not because of what, but not because of us, but for us. So that we may know the power and the love of God to save and bring close to those whom he saved to have eternal life. How sweet the love of Jesus. Friends, don't believe the false promise of anger, but believe in the power and the person and the work of Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. I hope that today's talk was helpful and that you've taken something away from today's discussion. You may not agree with everything I've said, but take the topic to your friends, your family, your co-workers, and allow your mind to be transformed through a community of learners. May God bless you today and forever. This has been an NCP conversation, and I have been your host, William Garner. I look forward to talking to you in a few days.